Our scripture this morning is from Genesis 1, 24 through 31 as we continue our sermon series uh, through Genesis chapter 1 through 3. Uh, before we read God's holy, inerrant word, let us ask the Lord to bless the reading and hearing of his word. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, bless now the reading and proclaiming of your word by the power of your spirit. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. May you be exalted and glorified. And may we be edified and built up as your holy people. Through Jesus Christ our Lord and for his sake we pray these things. Amen. This is the word of the Lord, it is written. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds. Livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And the livestock according to their kinds. And everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then the Lord said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with its seed and its fruit. You shall have them all for food. And to every beast of the earth and every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. Now to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood... To Jesus Christ be our glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. This past Sunday, we discussed what it means for our human nature to be created in the image of God. And what we said, based on the context of this passage and others in Scripture, as well as the cultural context was that being created in the image of God means that we resemble God. Not in physical appearance, obviously, but in that we share characteristics with God. We have the ability to reflect God and to be in relationship with God. As John Piper says, man is at some level a copy of his maker. This is an awesome blessing. No other creature is created in this manner. Judah and I were on the way to school this past week, and Judah said to me, Daddy, I bet it would be pretty neat to be a bird. 
I wish I could be a bird, then I can fly anywhere I wanted. How wonderful the thoughts of a child who still looks at God's creation with wonder and amazement and delight. I agree that it would be pretty amazing to have the ability to fly like a bird, but I said to her, God's word says you have been created to be even more special than a bird because you were created in God's image. And that makes you to be the crown of God's creation. Of all the amazing things that God has created from the sun and the moon and the stars and the other planets to the enormous range of plant and animal life, human beings are the apex of God's creation. And I reminded you of what Jesus says about birds. He tells us to look at them, look at how God cares for them and then he tells us not to worry because if God cares for the birds in this way don't you think he will care for you all the more why because you are one who has been created in his image what a tremendous blessing to be uniquely created as the apple of God's eye But as I have said before, tremendous blessings come with tremendous responsibilities. And so as I indicated last Sunday, Genesis 1, having stated that we were created in God's image, is then particularly interested in the human function or purpose in creation. We've answered the question of what is the nature in which we have been created. Now we turn this morning to what we were created for. Verse 26 tells us, And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. If you remember from last week, one of the places that we looked to help us to interpret what it means to be created in God's image is ancient culture's view of kings. Kings were sometimes described as the image of whatever patron deity was For the region of their rule. They were seen as the adopted sons of gods. They therefore functioned as representatives or vice regents of the deities. This is the exact language Genesis 1 is using to describe the role of humankind in creation. Having been created in God's image, we have been given the task of serving as representatives for God in creation. As God's vice regents. We are the physical representatives of the invisible creator God who image God to the whole creation. In the same way that kings in ancient cultures were responsible for ruling in a way that promoted justice and peace and the well-being of society under their kingdom, so too is the responsibility of the one who has been created in the image of God to rule as God's representatives over all of creation. When the scriptures tell us that our task is dominion, it is using royal imagery. Humans created in God's image are royal figures who represent God as his appointed rulers. Now, I don't know what you think about this, but to me, this is astonishing. It astonished David. This is what he is conveying in Psalm 8. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him? 
Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the seas. I can imagine David as a young shepherd boy laying in a pasture at night as a sheep gazed around him looking up at the vastness of the heavens marveling at the billions of stars and all the planets and being amazed at the beauty of God's creation. But even more than that as he reflects on Genesis 1 he marveled on the truth that in all that God had created he had created humankind in a way that set them apart from the rest of creation. He created them in a way that revealed his love and concern. Yes, but not only this, he set them over all of God's creation. It's astonishing, but it is God's design that man would serve as his representatives. Humankind was created to be the physical representation of God's rule on earth. David says here that humans have been crowned with glory and honor. As commentator Gerald Wilson states, these are characteristics of God himself that adorn the frail humans created in his image and allow his power to be displayed through those creatures he has graciously chosen to extend his authority into the world. So the function of humankind in creation was to be the caretakers of God's creation. They were to image God, to show forth God's goodness and love and rule in a way, in the way that they cared for creation. They were to reflect God's glory to all of creation. We need to note here that having dominion does not mean that God was giving humankind ownership of the earth. The Old Testament is clear that the earth belongs to God. This is Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. It also does not mean that the earth and all that is in it is placed under the authority of humankind in a way in which they may ravage the earth and strip all the resources from the earth for their own benefit. As having dominion in subduing the earth has unfortunately sometimes been interpreted. While we have been commanded to exercise divinely authorized responsibility, our authority over the earth is, as one scholar notes, distinctly limited and directly responsible to God. We are stewards then, who have been entrusted with something that belongs to someone else to care for it and nurture it. If I let you borrow my truck, I have given you dominion over it, and you better not bring it back to me with dents and scratches in it and with an empty tank of gas. You would not have been a good steward of it. So as we will see in Genesis 2, Adam's task in the garden is to work it and keep it. The word translated here is work, also is translated to serve. 
And hopefully here we are thinking about what Jesus said to the scribes and Pharisees, also to his own disciples. The greatest among you will be your what? Servant. And this was Jesus' model. Jesus, the image of the invisible God, the ruler of the universe, the king of kings and the Lord of lords. And how does he come to earth? As a servant. He has come not to be served, but to serve. This is how God desires and intends for rulers to rule in humble service. Likewise, the verb to keep insinuates care. Think, of, think about the ironic blessing, the Lord bless you and keep you. It's the same word. It means to preserve, to protect, to maintain. Humankind is instructed to keep the earth as the Lord keeps us. God is telling Adam, therefore, to cultivate the garden, to assist it, to achieve its own natural and highest tendencies. As John Collins states, mankind's original task was to begin from Eden, work their way outward, and spread the blessings of Eden to all the earth. This would mean managing all of its creatures and resources for good purposes, to allow their beauty to flourish, to use them wisely and kindly, and to promote well-being for all. Let me ask you, how are we doing at this task? How are we doing at caring for God's good creation, at being stewards of it? as being responsible rulers. I know that environmentalism is one of those issues that's been unfortunately politicized in recent years. I want us to set aside politics for a moment if we can. Stewardship of God's creation is not a political issue. It is a biblical principle. It is a way to love God by caring for what he has created. It is a way to love others by caring about their physical environments and the effects it has on them. And so we must begin looking at this issue as God's people, as those created in God's image, as those responsible for maintaining and preserving his creation, as those who were created to image God to creation, not as Republicans or Democrats. Let's just look at the facts and how humans are doing in regard to caring for creation. Here's one. I'm sure that some of you have heard reports of the enormous amount of garbage that is floating in the oceans around the world. In fact, there are five huge accumulation zones of garbage in the ocean, the largest of which is between California and Hawaii, and it's being referred to as the Great Pacific Garbage Patch. It is calculated that this thing contains about 1.8 trillion pieces of plastic, weighing an estimated 80,000 tons, and covers an area over 1.6 million square kilometers. Friends, that is twice the size of Texas. Again, this is just one of the five accumulation zones. The effects of this garbage are widespread on wildlife. Research has shown that some 700 marine species have ingested this garbage. Many of these are at the bottom of the food chain, which means they pass this contamination up the food chain through predation and even on to humans. So the anchovy you're eating on that delicious Johnny's Sweep the Kitchen pizza might have more in it than you anticipated. 
Now we could write this off as coming from other countries, as something which is not our own doing or our responsibility. But let's really take an honest look at our lives. America is well known to be one of the worst nations about overconsumption. A few years back, America had 6% of the population of the world, but was consuming 33% of the Earth's resources. If every country lived on the level of consumption that America lives on, all the world's resources would be depleted within 10 years. And our overconsumption results in tremendous amounts of waste and pollution. Studies have shown that if the American people and their solid waste were spread evenly over the U.S., there would be in each square mile of the nation 56 people surrounded by 54 tons of rubbish, which would include three junked cars, 25 discarded tires, 8,500 bottles, 17,000 cans, one ton of plastics, and eight and a half tons of paper, which means we are producing a total of 340 million tons of solid waste per year. This overconsumption has been met by overproduction, meaning increased pollution, not just from disposal of products, but also the production of these products. Time Magazine reported a few years ago that of the 50,000 chemicals on the market at the time, 35,000 of those used in the U.S. were classified by the EPA as, quote, being definitely or potentially hazardous to human health. A Library of Congress study concluded that toxic chemicals, quote, are so long-lasting and pervasive in the environment that virtually the entire population of the nation and indeed the world carries some body burden of one or several of them. It seems that we have created a variety of health issues and that these toxins are producing acid rain, which is destroying forests, crops, sea life, It's reduced cotton yields by 33%, harvest, tomato harvest by 21%. I don't have to tell you these sort of stats, do I? All you have to do is drive out of town east on I-20 to see the mound of trash that we are creating. Gus Speth, who helped found the natural Resources Defense Council and was the dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies said this a few years ago. By the way, I think that he is an atheist, but he said this. I used to think that the top global environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address these problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. And to deal with these, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Dearly beloved, we can see all around us that something is very broken. Things are not as they were created to be. And it is a sin problem. The world is falling. As Paul says in Romans 8, the whole creation has been groaning under the weight of sin and longs to be set free from its bondage to corruption. The creation is groaning under the weight of our sin. As Old Testament scholar Kenneth Matthews states, the Hebrew love for life and the sacredness of all life assume a linkage between human righteousness and the welfare of the earth. In an agrarian economy of ancient Israel, this was best expressed in the care for its livestock. A righteous man cares for the needs of his animals. It's Proverbs 
12.10, also in 27.23. It's also in Deuteronomy 25. Sin impacts the prosperity of the earth and its inhabitants. In other words, the destruction of the earth is inextricably bound to our sinfulness. The more greed, the more pride, the more lust, etc., the more God's good creation is defiled and polluted. So what happens to this dominion mandate after the fall? Where do we stand? Well, while the scripture is clear that we still have dominion over the earth, it is certainly not as God had originally intended. It isn't just that our dominion has been used for ill, causing serious harm to creation. So often we seem to be helpless subjects of the tyranny of a broken world, right? I have a friend who, as a child, was bitten by a mosquito carrying malaria, and some 30 years later, she still continues to suffer under the effects of this disease. She is one of hundreds of millions of malaria cases each year. Upwards of three-quarters of a million die each year due to malaria. That sure doesn't seem like dominion over creation to me. Rather, we seem to be the victims of nature's wrath and fury. One could definitely ponder who or what has dominion at this point. But there's good news. There's good news in all of this. And I want you to hear it. The Apostle Paul, in reminding the church in Corinth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, of reminding them that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve, in reminding them that because Christ was raised from the dead, that we too have the hope of the resurrection to new life. And in this great 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul says this, and if you have your Bibles, Open them, and I want you to read along with me. This is chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, starting in verse 20. The Apostle Paul says this. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order. Christ, the firstfruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers a kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. And when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son, of him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Now, I know that this seems to be a very complex, convoluted passage, but you might have noticed quotation marks in it. That is because Paul is quoting Scripture. What Scripture, you may ask? Psalm 8. Again and again, six times, Paul refers back to the psalm where David marvels at the human dominion over the earth, referring back to Genesis 1. And what is Paul saying here? 
Why is he quoting Psalm 8 in a passage about the Christian hope of resurrection in the kingdom to come? Because Paul is reading Psalm 8 Christologically. He understands Jesus Christ to be the new Adam, the representative of a new humanity. This task that was given to Adam, this task of dominion and rule was tainted when sin entered the world. And with it, death and destruction and the triumph of many things over humankind became the reality. But this task of dominion is now being applied to Christ and is being fully realized in Christ. Paul is telling us that all things are being brought in subjection under Christ. Not only sin and death, but all things. Christ who is reconciling all things to himself, as Paul says in Colossians 1, has conquered all of creation by his death on a cross and now has been given dominion over all things. All things. So the redemption in Christ includes the whole sphere of creation. As biblical scholar Gordon Fee says, nothing lies outside of God's redemptive purposes in Christ in whom all things finally will be united. That's Ephesians 1. Therefore, at the death of death, the final rupture in the universe will be healed and God alone will rule over all beings. So we see this in 1 Corinthians 15 and in Colossians 1 and we also see it in Ephesians 1 where Paul is talking about the power that is at work in us which is the same power that God worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named not only in this age but also in the one to come. And then listen to this. And he put all things under his feet, Psalm 8, and gave him his head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Again, Psalm 8 is being applied to Christ and fully realized in him, but did you hear the connection between the church and this reign of Christ? And here's where this is going. Those who are in Christ who have been claimed by him and engrafted into him by the power of the Spirit, will be restored as rulers with Christ, in Christ, under Christ, regaining our true dominion over all creation. Revelation 3.21 promises, The one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. And what has Paul told us in Romans 8? That we are more than conquerors through him who has loved us. Jesus Christ has conquered and we are being made with him and in him and through him and under him to be conquerors as well. Dearly beloved, do you get it? This is not simply our hope of things to come. As those who are in Christ, as those who are being Conform to Christ's image, as Paul says in Romans 8, we have a responsibility now more than ever to participate in the redemptive work of Christ in creation. We who are in Christ have the great privilege to participate in Christ's work of reconciling all things to himself. Christ has accomplished this by his precious blood shed on the cross of Calvary. And Paul is telling us in places like Colossians 1, not only what Christ has done, but who we are 
in Christ and what we are to do in Christ as his church. So let me ask you, if we are in Christ, if we are being conformed to his image, if Christ is our head and we his body, and Christ is about the work of reconciling all things to himself, shouldn't we be about that work as well? What does it say if we are apathetic to care for God's creation? What does it say if we are unconcerned with our impact on creation? Dearly beloved, this is not a partisan issue. This is a Christian issue. So just as I encouraged us last week to see human dignity as something for which Christians should be outdoing our unbelieving neighbors on, let me encourage us this morning to see creation care in the same way. We should be leading the way in the encouragement and development of clean and sustainable energy. We should be leading the way in encouraging and creating solutions for minimizing the tremendous amounts of waste we are creating. Each of us should be leading the way as examples to the world what simplicity and contentment look like rather than overconsumption. This is an area for which I believe that Christian church is missing a huge opportunity for witness because this is an issue that many unbelievers are concerned with right now. In fact, unbelievers seem more concerned with the earth than Christians, and that is to our shame. We should be seeing this as an opportunity to share with others what we believe about creation, what we believe about Christ who created all things for his glory, who has come to reconcile all things to himself. This is an open door that the Lord has granted to us in this age to communicate the gospel of Jesus Christ to unbelievers. But regardless of the opportunity for witness, this is a matter of Christian discipleship. And I must confess that I wonder how much of our personal abuses of God's creation are related to our lack of trust in God's providence and provision. And our inability to find our identity in Christ alone. Just something to think on. Why do we overconsume? Is it because we want to feel secure? Is it because our identity is in material things? If so, there is deeper sin behind our overconsumption. So I want to encourage you this morning in closing, as you consider your role as an image bearer of God, as you consider your task of having dominion over creation, as you consider your task of participating with Christ and his redemptive work in the world, I want you also to consider what your environmental impact is. Your decisions about what you consume and how you consume are not morally neutral. There very well could be areas of our lives for which we need to seek God's forgiveness and repent. And I pray that we have the wisdom to seek God's guidance. The eyes to see our failures and weaknesses. And the courage to make changes in our lives to the glory of God and the exaltation of Jesus Christ. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we again give you thanks and praise that you have set us apart. That you have created us in your image. That you have made us to be the crown of your creation. Lord, what a tremendous privilege we stand in awe of this. 
But Lord, help us to also see the tremendous responsibility that comes with us. As those who bear your image, let us show forth your glory to all of the world and how we care for others and how we care for your creation itself. May we see ourselves as those who are stewards of this world that you have graciously entrusted to our care. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom all things are being held together and reconciled. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Apostles' Creed. Christian, in whom do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sitteth on the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Ghost, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.